You know, every week we put a slide up there that says, usually it says children are dismissed when the singing begins for Children's Church. Last couple of weeks and for the month of August, it says that the children will remain in service. And and uh, someone pointed out to me last week the um, the interesting placement of the order of service. I don't know if you noticed that, but for the two weeks prior to this, we've got to write this time, but the two weeks prior to this, it's, uh, the slide would say, children remain in service, and then it would announce the next song, smitten, stricken, and afflicted. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's one of those uh, church bloopers, you know, you don't really catch it. Seems like a good idea when you put it together, and then, then it comes out. <laughs> so we're going to sing that song, by the way, just one more week. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Every time we introduce a new song, we're committed to playing it for, singing it four Sundays in a row so that it just, we get to really know it. And then we'll tuck it away for a while and take it out again. And so, um, yeah, this is our third week, one more time. And the lyrics are so very, very good on that song. So open your Bibles up to Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3 for this morning. And I want to begin our time together this morning by showing you a picture that, depending on your perspective, will appear like a beautiful woman or an ugly hag. So if we could go ahead and do that. Yeah, I know. I don't start sermons this way, typically, but we're going to do that this morning. So there's that picture. As I say, it depends on your perspective. Some of you see a beautiful woman. Others of you see an ugly hag. I've got a few minutes here. I'm going to go ahead and do something really bold. How many see the beautiful woman? How many see the ugly hag? Okay. Some of you see both. How many see both? Okay, the majority of you see both. That's good. All right. Well, but it's interesting because generally speaking, when it first goes up there, we see one or the other. We, uh, maybe that says something about our outlook on life. I don't know. But, but generally speaking, when it first goes up, you, you see the beautiful woman or you see the Ugly hag. By the way, that photo is entitled My Wife, My Mother-in-Law. I, I don't know what. <laughs> I have no idea why it got titled that way. <laughs> I didn't entitle it, honey. Just make that clear. I didn't do that. I did put the picture up there. So we tend to, um, we tend to be drawn to see one thing or another, don't we? And for some of us, when we, we see one, we have a hard time seeing the other. Our, our eyes are locked in and we see the beautiful woman and we just can't seem to make it out as uh, where's the ugly hag and, and vice versa. That, that's not uncommon for people to, be, to sort of see things one way and not be able to see them the other way. And, and when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's, there's something similar to that going on. You can take that picture down now, please. Thank you. And... Uh, so I'm already deep enough in the hole. We don't want to keep it there forever. The, um, but that's, when it comes to the kingdom of God, that can be very true of us. We can sort of have this perspective, this, this um, point of view on what it means, the kingdom of God, and, and we don't, we're not really open to seeing other things. And so what I want to do this morning and in, in subsequent uh, weeks and months and years, but anyway, more focused in a more focused way this morning and next is to really talk about the kingdom of God in some detail, and in the process to perhaps uh, enlarge the way we view this topic of the kingdom of God because it is it is so important, so very very important. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we're in Matthew 3, right? A couple of weeks ago, we introduced John the Baptist. So we introduced the man, John the Baptist. Last week, we introduced his message. So we began to look at the, at the message from John the Baptist here. And as Matthew gives it to us in Matthew 3 and verse 2, we said this has got to be one of the shortest sermons on record. And why does it take multiple weeks to, to exposit a, a, a sermon that only was one sentence long? Well... The answer to that is because this is such a pregnant sentence. The sentence is so loaded with pre-existing understanding that, that we need to make sure we have too or we won't gain the impact of what John the Baptist has to say. So we're, we're going to look this week. Last week we looked at the, just the first word, repent. 
right? We spent a whole uh, sermon talking about that first word, repent. This morning, I'm going to look at the word for. No, I'm just teasing. I'm, I'm in a playful mood this morning. I don't know why. And um, we're not going to look at the word. Well, we, we will mention the word for. But we're not going to spend a whole, a whole Sunday looking at the word for. Okay? It would be interesting, though, wouldn't it? Do you know the word for appears in the New Testament? No. Just anyway. We're going to continue to look at his message. And this morning and into next week, we are, we are going to look in particular at the, the second part of verse 2 that begins with the word for. And that is the reason that John comes out with such a strong command when he first bursts onto the scene. We said last week he was like a, a desert wind that just arose. This fiery Old Testament prophet. And he begins by saying, repent. For because the reason you must repent is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Very bold statement that John makes for us here. And really, this is a doorway that opens up the rest of the gospel. The rest of the gospel sort of opens up through this doorway of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it raises in our minds, or at least it should raise in our minds, a a whole series of questions. It certainly does in mine. A whole series of questions with regard to this statement for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so I want to, this morning, begin to examine those questions, ask and answer them as we go. And and in process of doing that, I I believe that it will profoundly impact the way that you and I think about both this life and the life to come. So this is not just an academic sort of exercise. This is transformational stuff. This is a life-changing message. Once we get a hold of it, that will completely revolutionize the way that you think about this life and the life to come. This is a big topic. So we need to ask some questions. You ready? Oh, maybe I'll say one more thing before we do that. This morning is more of a Bible study than a sermon. It's going to be more of a Bible study than a sermon. There are a lot of scripture verses that we need to look at. So I hope you got your Bible ready, your personal copy of the Word of God, and you are ready to move around in it as we look at a number of passages in the Old Testament. So you need to be agile with us this morning. We'll take the time to let you get there because I want you to see these things with your own eyes. It'll be far more impactful for you if you take the time to turn and read it yourself and don't just listen to me, okay? Now, in order to to begin the process, we'll start with a simple question. What is the kingdom of God? First question. What is the kingdom of God? In order to begin to answer that question, we need to, we need to lay down some foundation stones. We need to, to build a strong foundation. We need to put in place some basic biblical thought. And as we pull together the, the, the biblical record, particularly the Old Testament biblical record, it, it's very, very clear that God's kingdom consists of, of two overlapping and yet distinguishable realms. First big thought. Two overlapping, so overlapping, but distinguishable realms to answer the question, what is the kingdom of God? The first of those realms is what many call the universal kingdom, the universal kingdom. And what that means is is that God rules at all times and in every respect over his created order. He has a universal rule. It's continuing at all times. It is never interrupted. It has never been interrupted. And it extends to his entire created order. There are no stray molecules anywhere in the universe. They all fall under the universal kingdom and rule of God. So there is this universal sense. And the scripture speaks of it. We'll look at some passages here momentarily. There is a second realm, though, and as I said, they somewhat overlap, but they are, they are clearly distinguishable. There is a second realm. This realm is more limited. It is more localized. 
It is time bound. It is centered upon a select group of people. And it is exercised through the mediation of a human leader. So let me just repeat that for you. The second realm is more limited and localized in terms of God's rule. It is time-bound. It is centered upon a select group of people. And it is exercised through a human mediator. Now, I imagine that there are a number of things that are whirling in your mind at the moment. And, and the most clear and obvious example is the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. The illustration of this mediatorial realm. And it's called the mediatorial kingdom. So we have the universal kingdom, God's universal and absolute rule over everything. There is the mediatorial kingdom, which is God's more limited, time-bound, localized rule with a specific group of people through a human mediator. There is an overlap in these realms, but they are distinguishable. That's my thesis. All right, let's look at some biblical evidence. Let's look first at biblical evidence for the universal kingdom. And, and for that, I want to turn you back to, to uh, Psalms. So back to the book of Psalms, Psalm 103. Psalm 103. This is evidence for God's universal kingdom or his universal rule. And the, the idea that it is that it is universal in scope. That is, that it extends over all. Extends over all. Psalm 103, verses 19 and following. For most of these, I'm just going to read the passage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time sort of explaining them. I'm just going to read them to you. I think, I hope they're all self-explanatory. So Psalm 103, beginning in verse 19. God's reign is universal in scope. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's this universal rule of God. This rule is a present reality. Second subpoint under this, it is a present reality and it extends, as we said, to every facet of the creation. So it is a present reality extending to every facet of creation. You can turn back to your left to Psalm 10 and verse 16. Psalm 10 and verse 16. Love to hear the sound of rustling pages. I don't know what we'll do when everyone has an iPad. It'll be just the sound of swiping fingers. Psalm 10 verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. Psalm 29, verse 10. Same thought. Psalm 29, verse 10. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord sits as king forever. And then turning further to the right to first, or sorry, to the left. To First Chronicles chapter twenty nine. First Chronicles twenty nine, beginning in verse eleven. By the way, for those of you who like to annotate your Bibles, you like to write in your Bibles, this is be a great start marking these things down. And you can create a little chain in the, in the margins of your Bible. It'll take you from verse to verse, passage to passage, and help you reconstruct this at a later date if you choose. So First Chronicles, rather, First Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 11. These are the words of the David, the great king of Israel. Verse 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. 
Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you shall exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. These are statements about God's universal rule, his universal reign, his universal kingdom. It is a present reality. It extends to every facet of creation. It is universal in scope. Third, third, he exercises his rule, his universal kingdom rule, through what is theologians call providence. It is exercised primarily through providence through providence providence is god's working in an unseen fashion through third party causation now you don't have to write all that down but providence is how god works today it is how god has generally worked throughout time that is through providence through providence it requires eyes of faith to pierce through the events of life and to see God's hand at work behind the events, both ancient and present. We see an illustration of this statement about providence in Daniel chapter 4. So turn significantly to the right, to Daniel chapter 4. And of course, providence could be an extended Bible study on its own, to be sure. Such a comforting doctrine. But God generally exercises a universal rule through providence. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. This is the sentence. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. In order that the living may know, this is the key, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliness, lowliness, lowliest of men. The littlest of men. Okay? That's an easy word for you to say. God bestows rule and authority on those whom he wills. He establishes leaders, it says in Daniel, and he removes again. Proverbs chapter 21 says the king's heart is like uh, channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he chooses. So God is at work ruling his universal kingdom, and he does it through providence. In the case of the affairs of men, it is through the agency of men. In the case of the affairs of the universe at large, it is through what scientists classify as the physical laws of the universe. It is God who is behind that. It is God who holds it all together. Verses 34, 35, while we're here in Daniel, Daniel 4. This is, remember, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he so uh, exalts himself that God humbles him and Brings him to his senses. And then Nebuchadnezzar, verse 34, at the end of that period of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? All right, God's universal rule, God's universal reign, God's universal kingdom extends over all. It is primarily manifests itself through providence. However, God reserves the right to himself to periodically and occasionally intervene supernaturally into his created order. He doesn't do it very often. By definition, if it occurred all the time, it would not be a miracle. Miracles are things that occur very infrequently. Finding a parking spot at the grocery store is not a miracle. Okay? And by definition, neither is having a baby. Miracles are things that do not happen with any kind of regularity or predictability, and they display the awesome power of God. It's as if he pulls back the veil of heaven momentarily and allows a glimpse in, and it is terrifying. Back to Psalm 135, 
Psalm 135. Verses 8 and 9. This is the occasional divine intervention and manifestation of God's universal kingdom. Psalm 135, verses 8 and 9. It says, He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. The plagues of the Exodus are a supernatural intervention of God demonstrating his universal rule over the affairs of men. This is his universal kingdom. Let's look at some evidence for this mediatorial kingdom. We postulated the two somewhat overlapping realms. Remember, we said there was some overlap, but they are distinguishable. So now let's look at this second realm called the mediatorial kingdom, the one that is limited, the one that is local, the one that is time-bound, the one that involves a specific group of people, and the one that is, that is manifest through a human mediator. This kingdom realm has a definitive beginning, whereas the universal kingdom has no beginning, has no end. This one has a real beginning, a definitive beginning. Daniel chapter 2. As many places we could go on a lot of these, it was very difficult to boil all this down. So if you want to explore this more with me, I'd love to do it with you offline. But for now, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, will illustrate this point. It is a definitive historical beginning. Nebuchadnezzar has had a vision he has seen this statue that is, that is made of various kinds of descending order of, of precious metals. And in the end of his vision, the end of his dream, there is a, there is a stone cut without hands that smashes the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees. And then this stone grows to become a mountain and it fills the entire world. That's the dream. Daniel interprets it. He interprets now here at the end in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Now notice, in those days, God will set up a kingdom, meaning it has a beginning point in time. It it starts at a point in time. Secondly, this mediatorial kingdom has a a localized rule established on earth. That is that the rule in this kingdom is an earth-bound rule. For that, I will turn you to your left to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 24. Isaiah 24 And verse 23, local rule established on earth. Isaiah 24 and verse 23. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. His reign will be visible upon Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Mount Zion is the temple mount in the city of Jerusalem. That's where his reign will be localized. Now that reign of God in Jerusalem was future to the prophets, meaning it was never fulfilled within the scope of the Old Testament. And we know that to be sure by turning to the second to last prophet of the Bible, Zechariah. So if you will turn to Zechariah chapter 14, it's way to the right. Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew would be the order. Zechariah was written around 520 BC, so 500 years, a little more than 500 years before the birth of Christ. Zechariah is what is called a post-exilic prophet, 
meaning he wrote to the people after the Babylonian exile. They had returned from Babylon, and yet, even though they had returned, even though they had constructed a temple again, the prophet, under inspiration, was still looking forward to a future great and glorious day for the reign of God in Jerusalem. Verse 9 Zechariah 14, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. By the way, as you're reading the, New, the Old Testament, and I assume many of you are in the Bible reading that the church is doing, you'll see that expression, in that day. You'll frequently see that expression. When you see that expression, in that day, that is a clue to you that generally speaking, not without exception, but generally speaking, it is looking forward to a future time that has not yet come. Not yet come from the prophet's point of view and not yet come from our experience either. So it's a future reign in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, future to Zechariah, and by the way, future to Jesus Christ at the time when he was walking this earth, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. This is called the Lord's Prayer, right? Many of us have memorized it from our childhood. We've memorized it, but we don't know what it means. Well, when we get there, it's going to be a delight to unpack it together. But let me just observe this one thing with you in verse 10. One of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray this way. Pray that, Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? That means it's not there. The kingdom was not there. His will was not being done on earth as it is in heaven. Meaning the mediatorial kingdom has not yet come into existence. Has not come into existence. Third. This mediatorial kingdom, as we said, is ruled by God through a mediator. Psalm 2. I probably should correct something I just said to be technically correct when I said it hasn't come into existence. It hasn't been manifested on earth. I can get myself really deep here really quick. It's not to be seen on earth at that time. How's that? You can talk to me afterwards if you want to know what I meant by that. <laughs> Either that or you can read the book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, and you'll get it. Okay, here we go. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, ruled through a mediator. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, so God says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God has installed his king. This is a messianic psalm, by the way, finding its fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah, whose reign has not yet been established upon Zion. Finally, this kingdom is based upon a covenant made by God with man. For that, we turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, where the psalmist recounts the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The psalmist writes, beginning in verse 27. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. 
He's talking about David. You can let your eyes go to verse 20 and you can see that to be true. The psalmist is recounting the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. So this mediatorial reign of a localized, limited, time-bound reign through the agency of a mediator, a human mediator, comes to its greatest fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And his reign has not yet come into existence. Second question. The first was, what is the kingdom of God? Second question, what does John mean? For that, we go back to Matthew chapter 3. And if you're sharp, you recognize that John doesn't use the, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew doesn't use the expression kingdom of God. He uses a different expression. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This expression, the kingdom of heaven, is unique to Matthew. It is unique. Of all the gospel writers, Matthew is the only one who uses this expression. And he uses it 32 times. It's a very prevalent expression in Matthew's gospel. The other gospel writers use the expression, the kingdom of God. Matthew alone uses the kingdom of heaven. Now, some commentators have have tried to make a difference out of these, saying Matthew is speaking about one thing and Luke, Mark, Luke, and John are speaking about something else, but it just doesn't hold up. They are one in the same. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are one in the same. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you very quickly by showing you where the same event is referred to as the kingdom of heaven in Matthew and the kingdom of God in Luke, for example. That tells you that they're using two different terms to refer to the same thing. And it's important we understand this. And I'll show you why in a moment. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Matthew records Jesus as having said. Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. With a parallel account, records it this way. Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. And turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, which did Jesus say? For yours is the kingdom of heaven, or yours is the kingdom of God? The answer to the question is, both. He said both. Like, Good preachers, he repeated himself regularly so that people got it. And when he repeated himself, he would use variations on an expression in order to drive home his point. So Jesus used both, and he used them interchangeably. I had other illustrations here of that. I'm I'm going to go ahead and skip those slides for the sake of time. So I don't want to just continue to belabor this point. Okay, But the point of the matter is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are interchangeable terms. But Matthew has has an exclusive preference for the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why does Matthew choose to use only that term, essentially only that term, when he speaks and the other gospel writers don't use it at all? Some will tell you, and this is common, by the way, if you read on this topic at all, what they'll tell you is that that Matthew uses the expression the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God because Matthew was writing to Jewish people, and that is a true statement. He was. And because, they say, he was writing to Jewish people and the Jewish people were sensitive about the use of the divine name that Matthew didn't want to offend them, and so he substituted the word heaven for the word Yahweh in order to, to maintain Jewish sensibilities. That is the common explanation. I do not believe that explanation works. I don't think it is the the final solution. It is possible. I'll grant that. All of those, those assumptions are true about the use of the divine name and so forth, although Jesus himself uses the expression the kingdom of heaven. So I'm not completely convinced by that. I think there's something much bigger going on, much bigger going on. What I think is going on here in Matthew chapter 3 and 
The rest of the places in Matthew's gospel where he is using this expression, the kingdom of heaven, is that Matthew is desiring to link the understanding of who Jesus is to the Old Testament prophecies. And the best way for him to do that, it's a subtle way to do that, but at the same time, it's a powerful way to do that for those who know their Bibles. And you remember how Jesus preached, right? Jesus preached in a way that, that was very clever. It was very apparent to those who, who had eyes to see and ears to hear, those who wanted to know the truth. It was clear and apparent what he was, who he was, and what his message was. But for those who were opposed, he veiled his message in such a way that would, that would keep him from, from being in a direct confrontation with the leadership of Israel and the Roman authorities until the time came. That's what he's doing here, I think. Turn back again to Daniel chapter 2 and let me see if I can demonstrate my point. Daniel 2. Question before the house. What does John mean by the expression the kingdom of heaven? We're back to Daniel 2. As I said before, Daniel is interpreting a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar. This dream was of five kingdoms, five world empires, one following after another, each empire conquering and absorbing the empires to follow. That basic premise lays out the structure of the book of Daniel. Over and over and over again, we have a different vision, a different dream, a different prophecy, but it is always of the same thing. It is the collision of world empires. It starts with a statue and then it goes to certain kinds of beasts and then it's narrowed and it goes to different kinds of animals, but it is always the same thing. Always. Five world kingdoms. Each one successive. It's interpreted for us. The first is the head of gold and it is the kingdom of Babylon, right? The kingdom of Babylon is absorbed by, falls before and is absorbed by the kingdom of Medo-Persia. The Medo-Persian kingdom falls before the kingdom of Greece. The kingdom of Greece falls before the kingdom of Rome. The kingdom of Rome is not conquered. The kingdom of Rome collapses internally. And according to the prophetic record, is revived someday to then be crushed by the fifth kingdom, which is the stone cut without hands. That is the prophetic scheme of the book of Daniel. Now look at verse 44 again. We read it once. Look at it again. I want you to see something here. In and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. The God of heaven will set up that kingdom. There is a correspondence here between the statement, the kingdom of heaven and the God of heaven who will set up a kingdom. Beyond that, turn to your right to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Same succession of world empires. But here in this, in this vision, they are, they are symbolized as beasts. But we have the same five kingdoms or empires. These empires give way one to another, finally giving way before a divine kingdom which is established by a king who's called the Son of Man. And this king comes with the clouds of heaven. Look at verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. One like a son of man. He comes with the clouds of heaven and he receives the divine kingdom. By the way, just so you know, your pastor is not completely out in the realm of speculative theology or Bible exegesis, 
Matthew chapter 26 and verse 64. You don't need to turn there. You can just listen, or if you're fast, you can turn there. But Jesus is now before the high priest. On the night of his mock trial, he's soon to be executed. And the priest wants to know, who are you? Tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And listen to Jesus' answer. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Direct quote out of Daniel 7. Jesus' most popular name, the way he most frequently refers to himself in the Gospels, is as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. That expression is not speaking of his humanity. That expression, the Son of Man, is emphasizing his divine kingship. He is the Son of Man who will come with the clouds and establish his earthly kingdom. So when John says, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we might say very easily, repent for the kingdom from heaven is at hand. For those of you who like it, a genitive of source. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom from heaven is at hand. Now, what does this expression at hand mean? That's the third question. What does this expression at hand mean? What does John mean? It is at hand. Literally, it means has come near. The kingdom from heaven has come near. It has come near. John is the forerunner to the Messiah, right? Verse 3, Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. Matthew cites the prophecy from Isaiah, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He is the forerunner. He is the frontrunner. He is the herald of the great messianic king. Therefore, John can legitimately say that his ministry, when it began, what that means is that the one who who follows after him, the one whose sandal he's not fit to untie, the one whose message he is proclaiming is close behind him. He's following right behind. His kingdom has drawn near as evidenced by the fact that the herald of the king is now in public ministry. John knew the kingdom was close by. John knew that fact. Beyond that, John knew from the Old Testament that if the kingdom was close by, then the wrath of God, which the Old Testament says precedes the coming of the kingdom, must be even closer. There is a sequence of events, the prophets say. It is wrath before kingdom. It is darkness before the dawn. The Jewish day, the day of the Lord, it begins at sunset and it runs to sunset the next day. It is dark and then light. And so John knows this reality. And so he knows that he is the forerunner of the great messianic king. And if he's preaching, that must mean the king is close behind. And if the king is close behind, the kingdom is close behind too. And if the kingdom is close behind, then the wrath is even closer. And so look what John says in verse 7. He saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for the baptism. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. If the kingdom is close at hand, the wrath is even closer. It is even closer. Therefore, you must, verse 2, what? Repent. You must repent. There is no time. It is now, or it will be never. Fourth question. 
What kind of kingdom did the people expect? What were they looking for? How did they understand this prophet of old? This guy dressed in camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, right? Locust legs hanging out of his teeth. What did they think he was talking about? Some will have you believe that they thought he was talking about some spiritual kingdom that exists inside of us. Poppycock. Foolishness. That's not at all what they thought. The only way they could have understood this man's message would be in their own historical context. And it is obvious that John provides no explanations. Look at the text. It is a very simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, chapter 4, verse 17, after John is imprisoned, Jesus begins at that time, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, look at his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is where? At hand or close by. No explanations. Just a proclamation. The absence of a formal definition means that they already must have understood what he was talking about. Or if they didn't understand, they had a place to go to figure it out. And the place they could go would be only one place, and that would be to the Old Testament. We must look to the Old Testament writings to gain an understanding of what this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven is all about. One writer said that there are over 200 separate descriptions of Messiah's kingdom to be found in the Old Testament. That if you ransack the pages of the Old Testament, you will find over 200 separate descriptions of Messiah's kingdom. That's incredible. What that means is you cannot read your Old Testament without stumbling over Messiah's kingdom all the time. And once you begin to look... That's indeed what the reality is. Once you're clued in to what you're looking for, you will find it everywhere. It is everywhere from Genesis all the way to Malachi. Messiah's kingdom, the mediatorial kingdom, is a physical kingdom. It is a very, very physical place entered into through a spiritual doorway. The doorway is regeneration. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Unless a man be born, what? Again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Verse 5. Unless you are born of spirit and water, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. It is a physical kingdom through entered through a spiritual doorway of regeneration, of being born again, or in our type of parlance, to be saved. If you are saved, you, are enter, you will enter into Messiah's kingdom. If you are not saved, you will not enter. By the way, further evidence that this is indeed the kingdom being talked about comes to us if we look at chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel. This is the Old Testament kingdom promised to Israel from long ago. A very physical place. What I want you to see in Matthew chapter 10, just really quickly, is the preaching restriction that Jesus puts on the 12 disciples when he sends them out. He's he's commissioning them here, and and he wants them to go. And in verse 5 of of Matthew chapter 10, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach and say, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Now, that's a very interesting preaching commission. 
You are to go out and to proclaim a message that the kingdom long promised in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel is close at hand. But you are to tell only the Jews. Only the Jews get to hear. Of course, at the end of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives them some different marching orders, doesn't he? There he says, you are to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. So by the end of Matthew's gospel, something's happened. The message has been broadened. We'll have fun when we get there. But let me point out one more thing to you. I'm going to take you over to Acts chapter 1. Because you know, maybe, maybe, okay, granted, originally it was a physical kingdom. I get that part. But, but you see, after Israel rejected it, it became a spiritual kingdom that's now, you know, we just, we kind of exist in this spiritual kingdom, right? We're, we're all part of the kingdom of God now. People use that kind of language all the time. Problem is that it doesn't square with the biblical language. Because in, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, this is 40 days after the resurrection of Christ. He has been spent the last 40 days. He has been instructing his disciples about the kingdom of God, Luke tells us, the end of his gospel. Jesus is about ready to ascend back to the right hand of the Father. So the disciples have one more chance to ask a really important question. And here it is, verse 6. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, you silly men, don't you know that the kingdom of God is just spiritual and that it's within you? That's not what my Bible says. That's not what your Bible says. Jesus answers them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus does not say, you've missed the boat. There is no physical kingdom coming to the nation of Israel. Instead, what he says is, it's not up to you to know when. But it's coming. It is coming. All right, we need to come up from air. Time to come up for air. That's a lot of data, isn't it? A lot of data. So what? So what? How does this all change my outlook on life? What's the practicality of all of this? Let me just sketch out a couple of things for you, and that will really bridge us into next week. When we realize that Jesus is coming again, or as James says in James chapter 4 and verse 9, the judge is standing right at the door. Remember what John says? Repent, for the kingdom is close at hand. And if the kingdom is close at hand, what is even closer at hand? It is the wrath of God, the wrath to come. The judge stands right outside the door, James says. When we realize that reality, when, he re, when we realize the fact that when he returns, he will return in fury, in anger, in judgment, then we will seek to, to emulate those Thessalonians. Do you remember them? Remember those Thessalonian believers? Those ancient Jewish people of the city of Thessalonica, where the Apostle Paul only spent three Sabbaths, three Saturdays with them, reasoning with them in their synagogues. But First Thessalonians says the most amazing thing about those ancient Thessalonians. They turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from what? From the wrath to come. From the wrath to come. My friends, wrath precedes kingdom. If you are not 
regenerate, if you have not been born again, if you are not trusting in Christ and Christ alone as your Savior, then you will not enter into Messiah's kingdom. But you will be consumed in the wrath to come. When will that day be here? No man knows. It is not for you to know the time or the seasons. But if John the Baptist were to stand here in front of you this morning, he would shake his long, bony, prophetic finger and he would say, Repent! Or you will burn. What about the rest of us? We have trusted Christ. We are not relying upon our own good deeds, our our own spiritual merit, our, our own ability to offer God something to satisfy him. You know, what will a man offer for the sin of his soul? We recognize we have nothing to offer. It is Christ and Christ alone. So is this message irrelevant to us? <laughs> Not at all. How easy do we become distracted? How easy do the difficulties and delights of this world obscure our vision? How bad is our spiritual astigmatism? But when we will think rightly upon Messiah's kingdom, it clarifies everything. Everything. You will hear me say this again next week. I'll say it to you now. If you want to know what heaven is like, then you need to you need to deeply examine the kingdom of heaven. Messiah's kingdom. It is the illustration, it is the down payment upon heaven. And when we do, when we begin to get our arms around it and begin to really see it for all that it is, how all-encompassing it really is, in a very physical, literal way, satisfying the deepest desires of our soul. Then the things of this world begin to go strangely dim. But when we lose sight of the kingdom, we focus on this world, We begin to live like those who have no hope. May God clarify our vision. You come back next week. I want you back here next week. Don't miss. I don't care if you're on vacation. Cancel it. (laughs) I want you to come back next week because we're going to take the whole time. And we're going to look at six aspects of the mediatorial kingdom. Six major areas of life that it encompasses. And when we're done, I prepared it this past week. I'll tell you, I couldn't stand my chair. I was so excited. It is going to absolutely captivate your hearts. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we're sinners. We're sinners, O oh Lord, who are so easily distracted. Our faith is weak. Pressures of this life seem overwhelming. The day-to-day events, the problems, even the delights, they, they seem so big. And sometimes you seem so small. We confess that, that our view of Messiah's kingdom is inadequate and truncated. It doesn't captivate our hearts. It, it Lord, it betrays for us a, such a weak understanding of the Word of God and in particular the Old Testament. Oh, Lord, we ignore the Old Testament and, and then we live impoverished Christian lives and we can't explain it. 
Father, be merciful to your people. Pour forth your grace upon us. For that one who is here this morning, our Father, who is without Christ, your spirit even now tugging at his heart, I pray, O Lord, you would grant him eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would grant him repentance leading to life. Let him call out upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And may you guarantee and grant him access into Messiah's kingdom. We pray with the saints of old, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. As the kingdom has a